Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 9, 1 through 17. And getting in the boat, he crossed over and came into his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic uh, lying on a bed. Uh, Yeah, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he saved. He said to the paralytic, uh, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to the thieves, or said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus said, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think uh, evil in your uh, hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth um, to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, or paralytic uh, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when, he, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God and given him such authority to the men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined uh, at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus in Oh, yeah, reclining with Jesus and, and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, uh, Why does your teacher eat, ta- eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what, what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, "Why do we and why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast?" And Jesus said to them, "Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast." No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears way from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, this morning we come with grateful hearts that because of the work of Christ, now we partake in Christ. And he is truly ours forevermore. Father, this morning we want to praise you for the work that you're doing in our midst and through your word in our people's lives. We thank you for the men's camp out this weekend and the fact that men got together and to hear from your word and, and hear how to pursue you through the, um, through the means of spiritual disciplines. I pray that our men would be marked by 
a faithfulness to these disciplines and in so doing lead us as a body that we would lead our families well, that we would lead our children well, that we would lead our church well. Um, But in order to do that, we must be given to you, that we must wholeheartedly devote ourselves to the disciplines of your word, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to fast and to pray, to journal, to meditate, to do all these different things, not simply for religious practice, but in in order to know you, to hear from you, and to experience your love and grace to us through your word. Father, we also want to pray for our members who are caring for sick loved ones, who are undergoing severe stress and anxiety and pressure because they love those around them and they seek to care for them. I pray that you would be with them this morning to remind them that you truly love and care for them. I pray that you would encourage them in the midst of discouragement as they're making trips to see doctors and um, maybe hearing good news, maybe hearing bad news, may they understand that your life and the life of the person they're caring for are in your hands. May they be filled with encouragement this morning, even from your text. Father, I also pray for this morning for those in our midst who are truly believers but are doubting, who are unsure whether they are in the faith. Father, I pray that this morning they would hear from you. They would hear your word and they would see that You love those, as Blake said earlier, who are not well. And so it is not a matter of sincerity. It is a matter of the one who we trust in, who is sincere when he says he will not cast those away who come to him in faith. May their doubts be moved aside and may a vision of Christ be planted firmly in their hearts and in their minds. We also pray this morning for our local association of churches, the Abilene Callahan Baptist Association. We thank you for the history of Baptist and the fact that we see it as a distinctive of ours to cooperate with other like-minded churches. I pray for the churches that make up this association. I pray that they would be marked by faithfulness to your word. I pray that they would be gospel outposts, that their pastors would be convicted of the truthfulness, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of your word, and they would preach unashamedly. They would be men who would handle the word of truth rightly. They would be workers who are not ashamed. And these churches would be shaped by the faithful teaching of your word from faithful men. Father, if there's ways that we as Southside can serve these other churches, help us to do that well for the sake of your kingdom, not for the sake of building up of Southside's kingdom, but for the sake of seeing Christ's name glorified in our community. And Father, one of these churches in particular, Thai Baptist, we pray for this congregation this morning. We pray for their leadership Bill Murphy, and Andre Stefnikov. We pray that these men, as they seek to lead this church, would be marked by faithfulness and that Thai Baptist would be built up into the image of your son, that this local outpost, this local bride of Christ would seek to glorify her bridegroom in all that she does. And Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, give us hearts of faith, give us attentive ears, give us submissive spirits. By your grace, amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And as we heard Court read earlier, Jesus is going back to his own city. And you probably know there's nothing quite like going back to your hometown. Some of you are in your hometown. But it never fails that there's always what I like to call hometown hubbub. 
Always something going on in your hometown. It's what I find when I talk to my parents. When I graduated high school, my hometown was in my rearview mirror. And then every time I talk to my parents, I'm reminded why I like my hometown in my rearview mirror. <laughs> but there's something special about your hometown. And for me, there's, nothing, there's something special about going back to my hometown because I get to eat in my own home around my parents' table. There's a sweet joy in being with your people in your place enjoying good food. Well, there was something about that even in Jesus' time too. Sure, there's a bunch of hubbub in his hometown, but there's also the satisfaction of a meal. And so this morning, as we look through these three sections, we're going to see three truths. We're still talking about Jesus' authority that Blake taught us about last week, how he is the authoritative son of man. But we're going to see three ways that Jesus uses his authority this morning. Jesus uses his authority to, one, forgive the sinner. Jesus uses his authority to forgive the sinner. Second, Jesus uses his authority to change the sinner. And then lastly, Jesus uses his authority to make sinners fit to eat at his table. So Jesus uses his authority to forgive the sinner, to change the sinner, and to make sinners fit to eat at his table. So look, let's look at Matthew 9, 1 to 17 together. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, even as I read that, you're probably pretty familiar with this account if you've been around the church at all. You might even have a mental image of this story from your Sunday school curriculum growing up or from the storybook Bible that you read to your kids in family worship. But I want to caution us from letting our familiarity of the details of the accounts of Jesus, like the one we're about to read through, Let us not let our familiarity with these accounts breed a sense of apathy towards the Jesus that it reveals. As I'm reading this, you're probably filling in the gaps as I go. You you might even notice as we read through this that there are things that are mentioned in other accounts that are not mentioned in this one. But we need to be careful. And in some sense, we want to be like the crowd. You won't hear that often when we're preaching through the New Testament books. We want to be like the crowd because at the end of this section, it tells us that they were filled with a fearful awe. Now, they weren't perfectly right. We'll see how they missed Jesus here in a minute. But we want to walk away from this passage with a fearful awe of the Christ that we're reading about. And Matthew tells us that as he goes back to his hometown, that he's encountered almost, almost seemingly abruptly by this paralytic man. We only find out later that there's a crowd observing him. In other accounts, we see the crowd is, is so jam-packed around Jesus because he's in this house, and so the paralytic man has to go through the roof. But Matthew doesn't present it that way. He shows us as though Jesus has just gotten off the boat, and then the paralytic is thrust in his face. And it's obvious why these men see a need to take their friend to Jesus. He's established himself as a miraculous healer. He has this reputation, and When it's discovered, they grab the bed, presumably with the man still on it, and they take it to Jesus. 
But Jesus responds in a highly unexpected way. Middle of verse two, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the response of this man? Matthew doesn't tell us. This is purely speculative, of course. And you might even have heard this passage or studied it in another context where preachers have said that this man might have been disappointed. He came for healing and instead he got forgiveness. But Matthew doesn't give us any reason to believe that. In fact, notice what Jesus says first. He says, take heart, my son, Why would Jesus feel compelled to say this? Maybe this man is filled with doubt. Maybe as his friends are carrying him on the bed, remember he can't do anything about it, he's paralyzed. But maybe as they're carrying him to Jesus, he's saying, guys, set me down. Don't take me to Jesus. I doubt he'll have any regard for a man like me. Y'all are my friends, you know me, you know the kind of life that I've lived, you know the things I've said, you even know some of the thoughts I've had. And we don't know, we're told very little about the background of this man, but it also could be that he is paralyzed because of some sort of sin in his own life. It doesn't tell us that. It could be just a matter of living in a fallen world. It could be because of his own predicament. We don't know, but we know that he comes to Jesus and Jesus tells him to take heart. In other words, to be encouraged, son. This is a fatherly, a comforting word that Jesus gives to this man. And this man, it's possible, felt more immobilized by his shame and his sin than his paralysis. But Jesus, with this fullness of divine authority, gives a gift to this man, an unimaginable gift. Son, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, at those four simple words, an unimaginable weight is lifted off of this man. I'm reminded of a scene from Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan writes, now I saw in my dream that the highway set along which Christian was preceded was to proceed was fenced in on both sides with a wall and that wall was called salvation. Therefore, burdened Christian ran up this way, though not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. So he ran in this direction until he came to a place where the way ascended up a small hill and at the top stood a cross while below it was a stone tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden fell off his back and then continued to tumble down the hill until it fell into the mouth of the stone tomb and was seen no more. At this, Christian felt glad and overjoyed, and in his excitement, he exclaimed, He has given me rest by means of his sorrow and life by means of his death. Then he stood still for a while and looked with wonder and amazement, for it was so surprising to him that the sight of the cross should accomplish the release of his burden. Therefore he looked again and again until an inward spring of water flowed down his cheeks. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anyone ease the grief that I was in until I came here. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall off my back. 
must hear the cords that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Now obviously without the leaps of joy, I'm sure this is the kind of elation that filled the man on the cot. He was released from his burden. But then, just like a Big 12 ref, the scribes are ready to throw a flag. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now compared to the accounts of this interaction in Mark and Luke, we don't get their questions. We don't get, why does he speak like this? We don't get, who can forgive sins but God alone? Instead, he only says, this man is blaspheming. And I think Matthew intends for us to see the contention between Jesus and the Jewish authority. It's not a question, it's an accusation. Because while we're tempted to think that the scribes fail to understand the words of Jesus, rather their charge of blasphemy shows that they misunderstand the person of Jesus. It's not a question about what he says and what he means, it's a question of his authority. This man is blaspheming. These men know well enough that only God can forgive sins and so they rightly identify the claim that Jesus is making by his pronouncement of forgiveness. But don't miss one of the consequences from this charge of blasphemy. We think of the hardness of the scribes but think about the man on the mat. As he hears this discussion, as he hears maybe, maybe leaders that he's revered charge Jesus was blasphemy, maybe this thought creeps in his mind, are my sins really forgiven? This is one of the dangers of false doctrine. This is why we care about doctrine so much. Because false doctrine prevents people from enjoying the riches of the blessing of Christ. False doctrine causes true believers to doubt And false doctrine gives assurance to unbelievers. False doctrine is evil. Jesus says in verse four, but knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your thoughts? Jesus said, no, 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 you just got it wrong. He says, no, you are considering evil. See, this man whose heart has been suddenly lifted from the pit of despair is now left to dangle over that same pit, uncertain of his future because now maybe he's questioning the authority of Jesus too. Can Jesus really forgive my sins? And so Jesus sets out after this question to prove his divine authority. And I think it's not just in part to prove the scribes wrong, but he also is doing it for the sake of this man. This man who now questions whether his sins are really forgiven, Jesus sets out to prove him right. Which is easier to say, he asks, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. While both easy to pronounce with the lips, both are impossible by the mere words of man. Only God has the power over sin, sickness, and suffering. And here we find the point. Jesus is seeking to demonstrate his authority. And so, with the same divine authority, he has just said to the man, your sins are forgiven, Verse six, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Do you know what the man does? 
he obeys. At this command of Jesus, rise, the man does just that. For however long this man has laid on his bed, you can imagine him going through extreme exertion in an attempt to get his legs to just budge, summoning every bit of willpower to make a toe wiggle and nothing. His legs would not obey him. But when the eternal Son of God issues a command, not even a set of paralyzed legs dare disobey his authoritative voice. But don't let the mist of the miracle view and f- or fog your view of the meaning. It's wonderful that Jesus has caused the lame to walk, but it is earth-shattering that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And this is what happens to the crowd. They marvel at the man walking, but they fail to see what is truly the miracle. In other words, they see the miracle but they failed to see the person in front of him performing the miracle. Notice what it says there. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. Praise God. But then notice what Matthew says. Who had given such authority to men. See, they see Jesus as a gifted man. Even a man with some authority from God. But they don't see him as having the authority of God. The crowds were pleased with Jesus, but they failed to recognize the full weight of his authority, thinking simply that God had gifted a man. It's as though he conveniently fitted into their preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be. Everything fits. This is the promised one of God. See, he's, feeling, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's causing the lame to rise. This is surely a great man. but they miss the claim. The claim that Paul reiterates in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world not to cause the lame to walk. He came into the world to save sinners. Friend, are you here this morning? Do you see your sin or do you see your suffering as much greater? See, your sin is your chief problem before God. It is good if you recognize that you are a sinner. It is better that you know that Jesus has the power and authority to declare them forgiven at the foot of his cross. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Next, we see Matthew then describe his own calling. Jesus changes a sinner. Let's talk about the tax collector for a minute. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Two simple words, follow me. And much like the paralytic, Matthew obeys the command of Jesus. This, in and of itself, would have been the new scandal of hometown gossip, That Jesus, who is becoming quite popular amongst the people, is now aligning himself with a tax collector. Now, it should be obvious that no one likes to pay taxes. You might remember maybe as a teenager or as an early college student getting your first paycheck and looking at it and wondering, who's FICA and why is he getting all my money? Or you might have heard the words of the esteemed philosopher Tim Hawkins 
Who can tax the sunrise? Who can tax the trees? Let you run a business and collect up all the fees? The government can. But this isn't about the government. This is about the tax collector who lives next door. These tax collectors were Jews themselves, if only by race and not by practice. And they were taxed what Rome required them to, but then they would raise their rates and they'd skim off the top and pad their own pockets. And they're quite good at it too. You can make a lot of money doing this. And while it was legal according to Roman law, the Jews saw it as outright robbery. It was defrauding of your friends and your family. And you can imagine Jewish moms talking to their young children, helping them dream of their future and saying, son, whatever you want to do, I'll love you. That is, unless you become a tax collector. And that's precisely what makes Jesus' call of Matthew so scandalous. It makes sense that someone with healing abilities would be drawn to a leper, that they would go to the lame man, that they would go to the blind man, yet Jesus bucks even those stereotypes and he goes to the one who is responsible for his circumstances. Matthew was a wealthy man, a brilliant man, a literate man, but he was not a good man. He was a man who willingly and consciously abandoned his family and countrymen in the pursuit of wealth. And here we have Jesus offering him something new with two words, follow me. And these two words, although simple to understand, are weighty in their meaning. This phrase, follows me, requires a response. It involves risk and cost. And for Matthew, if he chooses to follow Jesus, then he loses everything that he's worked his life for. He loses his wealth, he loses his opportunity for wealth. And Jesus lays this gauntlet down in front of Matthew and gives him a choice. But Matthew picks it up and he doesn't look back. Matthew, who was once a traitor of his own people, is given a new king. And in so doing, he lops off the head of the serpent sitting on the throne of his new heart and makes that space for Jesus. So this morning, I want to ask you, do you know that there's a cost to following Jesus? And have you considered it? What are you willing to forsake if it means having Jesus? Now, this idea of Matthew following Jesus of leaving everything doesn't necessarily mean that you will leave all of your relationships and possessions. Rather, it means that all all that you have moves from the seat of honor in your heart and becomes a tool in your hands to be used for the Lord's sake. The things that we once treasured above all become sacrifices of worship to our new and greater treasure. See, when we pick up the gauntlet that Jesus lays in front of us by these two words, follow me, it means our opportunities, our relationships, our possessions, our resources, they go on a chopping block. And we say, Jesus, either this gets used for you or it gets cut loose. This means our education. This means our family. This means our jobs. This means our times. This means everything about us. This means our lives. And notice how Matthew does just that. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, I think Matthew's being modest here. The other authors tell us that this is Matthew's house. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew immediately takes his space, his influence, and he leverages it for kingdom purposes. 
Matthew, immediately after choosing to follow Jesus, goes and grabs his friends and tells them that he has someone they have to meet. Now our world doesn't have a problem with people going and helping victims. I would venture to say that most of us in this room would recognize that true victims need advocates. They need someone to come along and help them to meet their needs. Yet this is not what this account of Jesus highlights. He isn't going to the victim. He's going to the perpetrators. He isn't going, he's going, he isn't going to the, the ones who are, are, who are consoled by society. He's going to the ones who are derided as sinners. These people that G- Jesus is hanging out with, they have caused suffering for their friends and their kinfolk. Imagine for a moment that that scammer who's called your grandmother and is now stealing her money so that she can't pay her bills, you go out and you reach and become a friend of that person. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's going after grandma scammers. And yet, even in this account, we see those big 12 refs are back. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then we get Jesus' response. Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here quotes Hosea 6.6. And in so doing, he sets the order straight. It was not the sacrifices of the people of Israel that earned God's steadfast love, that earned his mercy. It was God's mercy that then made it right for the people to offer their sacrifices. And here's the problem. When we flip that equation, we end up with the wrong answer. We end up with a false gospel. We do not earn mercy from God. We have mercy and therefore we give our lives as a return as an act of worship. I mean, this is, what, this is what the book of Romans shows us, right? For almost 11 chapters, we're told of the glories, of the riches, of the mercy of God in Christ. And then in verse, or chapter 12, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite, they had flipped this equation. And what does Jesus tell them? Go and learn what, these, what this means. These were the learned scholars of Israel and Jesus says, go, you have some more school. They're accusing Jesus as being a friend of sinners. And you know what? They're right. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus longs to change sinners. And he calls his disciples to love sinners as well. See, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he doesn't delight in their wickedness. He delights in their repentance. He is the doctor that loves what he does. He's the doctor where a patient walks into his office and the disease has taken over. He doesn't plug his nose and walk out the room and say, nurse, handle it. He's a good doctor who doesn't reject his patients, but in the compassion and skill necessary, he treats the sickness. Jesus specifically says he came to call sinners. And with the sharp rebuke of the Pharisees, I think what Jesus is saying is don't you realize that you also are sick? 
He's not, he's not saying that the Pharisees are well. He's saying you are blind to your own sickness. And if they, would ser- if they would seriously recognize the state of their heart and divest from their own self-righteousness, I think Jesus is saying I would be your friend too. But notice in this text how we have a follower of Jesus and we have observers of Jesus. The Pharisees are simply watching Jesus And whenever he fits into their preconceived notions of religious fervor, they're fine with it. But when he differs from their own ideas, a bitter taste wells up in their mouths because they do not see themselves as sick. And I wonder this morning, are you simply an observer of Jesus? Do you consider yourself well? Are you looking at Jesus and considering the ways you are like him, but failing to consider the ways in which you are unlike him? Does the example of Jesus and his commands make you uncomfortable and compel you to change or are you fine where you are at? Because that is the difference between a follower and an observer of Jesus. See, Matthew hears the call of Jesus and he realizes change must happen. He hears the call and he leaves everything. He begins waking up every morning. Notice he doesn't sell his house. He uses his house. He wakes up every morning and he asks a simple question. How can I use what I have today for the kingdom of God? This is what it means to leave everything. It doesn't mean that you will sell all your possessions and move overseas, although it may mean some of that for some of you. I pray God that it does. But it does mean that whatever you have in your life, whatever you future God has planned for you, you consider it how you use it for his sake. In other words, as we like to say at Southside a lot, all of Christ for all of life. And in these two passages, we see a couple of examples of responses to Jesus. We see a man who in faith is drawn to Jesus and finds the forgiveness of his sins. This morning, are you like that man? So burdened and immobilized by your shame, you have a hard time even coming here to church. Let this story assure you that if you come to Jesus in faith, he surely will not cast you away. But he will forgive you and give you new spiritual legs by which you may walk and follow him. We also see a man who Jesus comes to directly and invites. Have you been invited to follow Jesus? Maybe by a friend or a family member who've said following Jesus is worth it. Consider it. Consider how your life would change. Consider what you would be afforded if you follow Jesus, as we'll see in just a minute. But also come with a warning for those of you who would consider yourselves healthy, yet Jesus diagnoses it sick. Are you comfortable with your religious practices such that you're unmoved and no longer see ways in which Jesus challenges you to greater faith and obedience? But here's the good news, friends. For each of us, wherever we might find ourselves, Jesus with his authority can forgive your sins. He can and will call you to a new life and he can heal you if you would follow and trust him. And in so doing, we see that he invites us to a feast. We move to our last section here. A question of fasting. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast but you and your disciples do not fast? Matthew doesn't tell us the occasion for this question, but it comes on the heel of Matthew's party. And so you can almost imagine them asking this question while Jesus is enjoying the feast and he has to politely raise his finger and cover his mouth because he's got so much food. 
But we see the questioners are not the Pharisees this time. They're the followers of John. They had heard John the Baptist's message of the coming Messiah and they had changed. They had begun to follow Christ. But isn't it so interesting that how quickly they move from being excited about the Messiah to now aligning with the Pharisees and standing over judgment of that same Messiah. And Jesus answers their question. But he answers it by centering the answer on himself. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So you don't go to a wedding to abstain. You go to a wedding to rejoice, to celebrate, and to feast. Jesus intends for them to understand that his presence is reason to celebrate for he himself is the promised bridegroom. He is the messianic hope of God's people, the long-awaited savior promised from the fall of man, revealed himself. And therefore, there is cause for feasting and celebration. For God has caused his face to shine upon the people through his son. And Jesus makes clear the temporary nature of his presence. One day he will be taken away and then his disciples will resume fasting, but not today. But then he explains, it's not just a change of a practice. No, Jesus is not just saying, we're gonna go back to the way things were. No, Jesus is saying, we're gonna do something new. Look at verse 16. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. See, Jesus expands his explanation with this parable and he gets to the heart of the issue. He equates the practices of Judaism with this old work, this old cloth, these old wineskins. And Jesus says, I haven't just come to fix what is old. I've come to bring something new. And so the container is new as well. There is a necessity for new practices. The practices of Judaism are incompatible with the new covenant. Fasting, for example, is not rejected, but it's transformed into this new discipline. Other things, we no longer circumcise as an evidence of being part of the covenant community. What do we do? We baptize We no longer offer regular sacrifices, but we remember through communion that the sufficient sacrifice has been made. See, Jesus didn't come to bring greater clarity on forgotten disciplines. He came to bring a new and better covenant inaugurated by his blood. Hebrews 8, 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. See, the Pharisees had it wrong. If we simply obey through religious fervor, we will please God. Well, Jesus already told us in the Sermon on the Mount, you have to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees. You can't simply fast and please God. It must come from a heart of faith. And so Jesus is doing something new. And it is with that, friends, that we as a church get to partake in the same reality. It is our joy to partake in the Lord's Supper as a church today, as a sign of this covenant, of the something new that Jesus has brought in. And while there are certainly seasons in which we as Christians should fast as we are commanded as a discipline, there are also seasons which we as Christians should feast. We feast as a reminder of what the Lord has done. 
we also feast as a proclamation of our coming hope. So it has a past and a future focus. But don't miss this. Jesus says it is right for the guest to celebrate in the presence of the bridegroom. And friends, when we gather as a church, when we constitute together in the church as the body of Christ, Christ by his spirit is surely with us. So we feast today in the presence of this same bridegroom. And we celebrate now as a foreshadowing of when we will feast with him in glory. See, this supper serves as a corporate and visible reminder of the forgiveness of sins. It calls us to the obedience of the gospel and it reminds us that while we eat in faith now, we will truly eat in the presence of Christ when he returns. And I'll close the words with the song about this meal. It's called Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away slain for us and we remember. The promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the king. If you're here this morning and you are a baptized believer in good standing with a local church that preaches this same gospel you have heard, I invite you to share in this meal with us. But if you're not a believer or you are not sure, instead of taking this meal, I invite you to come to Jesus to see that he has the authority to forgive you of your sins and call you to a life of obedience to him. Instead of taking this bread and this tup, take Christ. These are a little tricky. There's a cellophane one on top that reveals the bread. You can go and work on that one now. Friends, this meal is a reminder of our hope. It is a reminder of the completed work of Christ. But let us consider our own hearts before we take this meal. Consider any unrepentant sin in your own life, any unconfessed sin to the Lord, and take the next few moments to confess it now. Father, we have no right to eat at the table of your son. We have no right to commune with you. In our sin, we are unwell. We are paralyzed. But your son has the authority to forgive us. Your your son has the authority to make us well. For he is a friend of sinners. So Father, Prepare our hearts to take this meal in faith, not looking to our own self-righteousness, but looking to the alien righteousness that is Christ, who bestows it on us through his work on the cross. Help us to take this meal as an act of worship for you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.